Hey folks, welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, along with Bruce Kelly, my co-host. And this week we have Knut Rosted, president of the Institute for Fiduciary Standard. Knut is always an enthusiastic person to talk to. He's got a lot going on. He uh, he uh, he found his way onto this uh, guest spot this week because he called me a week or so ago to complain about something I wrote, and that's a that's a dead ringer way to get on uh, this podcast because it's a great like way to get on the podcast, Jeff. Somebody read the whole story to the end. <laughs> so, uh, Knut, that's a that's a red letter for you or whatever the gold star. Um, but anyway, today we want to talk to you about uh, this latest news that came out. Uh, our colleague Mark Sheff wrote about it. I know he talked to you. The uh, the fiduciary stand or fiduciary term actually being uh, I guess limited by the SEC in terms of uh, use in the form CRS. I, I don't. Why don't you give us a little bit of the backstory on this and and why this uh, is kind of a burr under your saddle. Great. Well, listen, first of all, thank you, Jeff, and thank you, Bruce, for having me on today. Um, I'll try to, uh, to uh, work, uh, meet the, the expectations you've set. Um, <laughs> as, th this is a burr under my saddle because what the SEC is doing is extraordinarily important and seems to be uh, overlooked by the vast majority in the industry. And, and, and what exactly the SEC is doing is um, making it extremely difficult on the disclosure form CRS, customer relationship summary, to for an investment advisor who by law is required to act as a fiduciary to say on their form CRS that they are a fiduciary. What we were responding to yesterday was a was a opinion by the staff of the SEC that came out two weeks ago, um, and but we've been at this now for six six or eight months, at, because we did some research in the industry and we found that the vast majority of investment advisors, uh, based on a couple of surveys we took last fall, do not mention in this two-page summary that they are fiduciaries. And that got, my, got me to scratch my head a little bit and, and wonder why. And what I found out was, and this is part of the background, that uh, some of them didn't know that they were allowed to, but many of the investment advisors thought they were not uh, permitted to mention they were fiduciaries. Mm -hmm. And when I went further and spoke to some compliance consultants, they expressed reservations about their clients stating their fiduciary status because of the uh, because of the the guidance provided by the SEC and I say huh and so when I looked at the guidance uh, four or five months ago um, it doesn't explicitly say that you cannot state your fiduciary but it it sends out warning signals so that's four or five months ago and then fast forward to March 30th the SEC comes out with a update on this. And here, the first thing, I want to give the SEC staff enormous credit because their opinion on this uh, was boiled down to 765 words that included their, their opinion and the footnotes. So, you know, first wow. give them credit for making it actually sh short so somebody would read it. 
and two, actually make, being very clear about what they're, what they're writing. And what they wrote was that, um, uh, frankly, that uh, uh, they were worried about investment advisors stating their fiduciary status and describing their fiduciary status um, because they thought it was a marketing advantage. So what they did in, uh, in, in this opinion was actually to set up uh, uh, additional barriers. And let me just read 10 words from part of this opinion because it's so important and so to the point. They, they explicitly said that such phrases as, quote, an investment advisor who is held to the fiduciary standard, unquote, is likely to be inappropriate. I think those 12 words, roughly, are words that should be uh, uh, um, ingested by every single investment advisor in the country mm -hmm. and let them sleep on that for at least, at least a day and then would say, what the hell is happening at the SEC? So, yeah. Uh, before you go any further, could you just back up a little bit and what is explained kind of in layman's terms or cocktail party terms? What is the form CRS and okay. how do advisors use it? Sure. And whether or not customers and clients actually are aware of it. Form CRS is part of the uh, package of uh, rules that came out in June 2019, and the best known one is the is is Reg BI, um, and that came out, uh, uh, and it also included this thing called Form CRS, and also included another uh, a piece called the Interpretive Guidance for, for Fiduciaries. But this is what what is what is special about this, Bruce, is that um, it limits a broker-dealer or an investment advisor to two pages to describe what they do mm -hmm. and to so the the the, um, uh, the aspiration of it and and as the chairman in in 2018 and 2019 uh, uh, rode around the country uh, 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 talking from the mountaintops about how important it was that we give a form that helps investors distinguish between brokers and advisors the purpose of the form, I think, is very important, and the uh, the 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 greatest aspect of it, frankly, is that is that it's limited to two, to two pages. <laughs> and and so, this is on Finra broker check, right? I mean, well, uh, it uh, it is all it, it is attached to the ADV. So, you know, March thirty first was an was a huge date for re, uh, re updating right. the ADVs, and so it should be attached to that. And, and most most IAs and, and, and BDs are required to use it. There's some exceptions. But, but brokers also on broker check started filing something similar too recently within the past couple of years. Well, uh, I'm, I ha I, I'm sure it is on broker check. I, I actually have not checked. I'm, I've been focused on, on the SEC. Okay. But, but this is what it is, and this is this is why it's important. And let me just because I because so it's a two-page kind of summary of your relationship with your client. In other words, that's what it's intended to be. Right. Yes, and you know I understand the skepticism of of advisors who say, "Why the heck does this matter?" Because a, most investors don't read disclosure, and b, if they read it, they don't understand it, and that's that's a that's a decent point. But I think that point is overridden by the fact that um, I'm not aware of any time, at least in recent history, that the SEC has tried to uh, discourage, I would say, uh, actually make it virtually impossible for, the S for advisors, investment advisors, to call themselves fiduciaries. So 
that should be a uh, that should be a red flag for investment advisors. This is something that I've been talking about for a long time as inside baseball. Um, you know, I think that the world is kind of gradually catching up to this concept of fiduciary, but this to me takes us a couple steps back and assumes that clients read these things, that a client is going to track down some advisor's <laughs> CRS. And, well, and like you said, even if they understand them, even if they're only two pages, I still think that these, these are just, you know, cover your bleep kind of things. I think that's a, that's a good point in terms of asking the question, why, you know, you know, frankly, why does it matter at this point? Why does it matter? And I think that uh, to answer that question, we just need to step back a couple st steps and say that uh, over the last several years, the SEC has, has worked feverishly to erase the line between the legal differences and legal purposes of advisors and brokers. And um, um, so that in the, in the mind of, of, of brokers and advisors, and more importantly, perhaps the public, there is no difference. Mm -hmm. So that's, to me, that's the broader context which makes this important. And for the SEC to, to effectively forbid the, the use of the word fiduciary on a major SEC disclosure um, is significant. Yeah. Why is the SEC doing this, though, Knut? The SEC says that, Bruce, that they're going to reduce confusion by identifying brokers and advisors as being identical in their, in their legal obligations. That's essentially, that's essentially their, their rationale. Now, they say that without saying that, oh, by the way, brokers exist to execute trades and to distribute products, while advisors exist to render uh, advice that meets a fiduciary standard. That piece of it they've forgotten and they've sort of, they've sort of erased. And instead they said, well, we'll solve the whole problem of investor confusion by saying that both brokers and advisors meet a best interest standard, period, and a sentence. Could you please pass the sugar? And let's, can we move on? I mean, we, we know by the name of your organization, Knut, that you're a, you're a fan of the fiduciary concept. And, but, you know, again, it just comes back to me is calling yourself a fiduciary. Um, it's, a, it's a great thing. To me, it feels like mostly marketing because I think you can call yourself a fiduciary and still not act as a fiduciary. And what are the consequences for that? That, Jeff, that's, that is a very good point. But where, where uh, we may differ in views is that what the SEC knows fully well is that because of the, because of the, the public awareness uh, uh, publicity of fiduciary over the last six or eight years, mm -hmm. they know well that the public, much of the public, uh, associates fiduciary with being positive. They couldn't tell you what it means, but they know it's positive and they know they should look for it. And Jeff, you know, you're exactly right. Uh, you know, if it's not going to be enforced, you can make the argument, well, let's get rid of it anyway because, the, because they don't enforce it. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, uh, uh, notwithstanding that, the, when you look at the differences of what uh, uh, independent investment advisors do behind the curtain, um, uh, it, is, it is dramatic as compared to what uh, we see on the broker-dealer or the dual registrant side. And those differences come up when we look at wrongdoing, when we look at uh, the implications of not even trying to adhere to a fiduciary standard.
So right, um, and and I I hear you and I agree with you on that distinction. Although I think there are maybe some subtleties that we're we're, we're glossing over here with the distinction, but I think the word fiduciary has been watered down to the point of meaninglessness. And I think if, if advisors, fee-only, fee-based, whatever, they got to find another way to stand out at this point because that, that fiduciary thing is, even though it seems relatively new in the context for for right. wonks like the three of us who, who live and breathe this stuff, yeah, I think it's been pummeled to death to the point where it's it's lost all significance and meaning. And like you said, it sounds like a positive thing, even though, it, but to me, if I'm going to work with somebody and they say, hey, I'm a fiduciary, I'm like, well, okay, does that mean you're not going to, you don't have the ability as a human being to break the law or to cheat or steal or something like that? It just means that you're supposedly operating to a, to a standard that you see or you deem as higher than yeah. the standard of the other guys. Well, I would disagree with that. Specifically what? Well, when you recommend products as a fiduciary versus a salesman to a brokerage client, it's a completely different process. Yes. <laughs> to sell a variable annuity or a REIT or insurance or bonds, I think. Right. Um, because you can sell when you're a broker, you sell from your own inventory and you can't do that as a fiduciary. You have to like price everything out and run a spreadsheet and say, this is the best deal and, and try to get the customer the best deal. Right. That fits. But right. but so investment advisors are, are operate under the 40 Act, right? The Investment Act, Advisor Correct. Act of 1940, right? Correct. Is the term fiduciary used in the 40 Act? The term fiduciary is not used in the 40 Act. The term fiduciary... So where does it come from then? The, 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 the fiduciary comes from the Supreme Court, which in 1963 looked at a case that, that, that delved into the 40 Act. And that's when the Supreme Court basically said that... Uh, that the 40 Act was was constructed and intended to separate those advisors who ha who meet a higher standard, i.e. the fiduciary standard, to be separated from those others who do not. So in the decision, does the Supreme Court, which is a pretty big deal, yeah, use the word fiduciary? Yes, yes. Then then why is the SEC saying that the Supreme Court in 1963 is is not correct? I don't uh, get it. Uh, well, th that's a very good question. I think it has to do with what the SEC believes uh, it can do, uh, frankly, um, and uh, and and that that's not a very good answer to your question. But um, uh, but I think that I think that is the central question: why they think they can, why they think they can do well, that. Well, that's the question, and I, yes. you don't know. Obviously, you don't work at the SEC. Is well, you know, I I mean, I know how the SEC rationalizes what they've done. Right. And you right. know. And you know, if there was, if we had an adult conversation, you know, I could go down sentence by sentence and and ask the SEC, well, what do you really mean by that? And you know, uh, they won't you... tell you. Well, no, they won't tell me. But I mean, you know, it's you know, they won't tell so... anybody. Yeah, there you go. They're bureaucrats. They don't have to. They don't have to do anything. Bingo. Um, the uh, it's it's just curious to me, uh, something that I think is positive is that the industry in many ways has been trying to do two-page disclosures that, and again, Jeff is right, that no one will read in simple language for years, going right. back to mutual fund disclosure. So with the mutual fund scandals, the pricing scandals, and all the conflicts that were revealed in, in, in the mutual fund, mutual funds um, at the time, right. 
And there was a big push to do that and nothing happened. So at least there's like a two-page disclosure, you know, well, which is definitely a move in the right direction in, I, in, I in think, my opinion. To Jeff's you know, point, I, will people read it or not? I don't know, but I think it's... I, well, you know, I, I think it's appropriate and the right thing to do. I think it's in the I think it's a point in the right direction. And if it actually was enforced the way it was aspired, um, it would actually be useful to investors. But the SEC hasn't even begun to approach it like that. But I, you know, but uh, going back to what Jeff said, uh, you know, uh, we at the institute have tr have basically tried to do what Jeff I think suggests to say, you know. Let's get away from this term fiduciary because mm -hmm. it's not enforced, because nobody knows what it means, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what we have done with our 10 practices. And we've, we have uh, uh, articulated our 10 practices on, in three pages so that, that an average normal investor can understand it without having to hire an attorney. And we think it makes sense, and we think it's plain language. And so that, that has been our approach to it. Never mind the label. Never mind the title. This is what you should expect from your advisor. And if, and if your advisor won't sign his name or her name to this, then just walk away and don't waste your time with that person. So anyway, that's, that's been our approach to it. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a better or, or cleaner way of doing it. It's still, you know, to me, it needs enforcement every time. Or, right. But to me, the, the concept of fiduciary, it's become meaningless. It's like, it's like me saying I'm a positive person. You know, I mean, okay, what di big deal? All right, you're positive. You're not a positive person. I, I, I'm not a positive, but I mean, you know, or I'm an honest person. I'm. I, I could just say, no, hey, no, no, work no. with me. I'm an honest person. Until I, I do you. something dishonest, you know. I hear um, you. I hear you. And 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 you're right. But you know, that's you know, but that is an enforcement issue. And you know, let me. And I don't just do this to say, can't you say anything nice about the SEC? That's not the point of saying what I'm about to say. If, I think if you look at the SEC's enforcement actions on share clash, on share uh, 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 class or initiative, as it's called. They, With the they mutual act, fund sales, you mean? Yeah, and the, well, well, yeah, they've actually got it right. Right. Because mm -hmm. they go in there and, and Bruce, I'm sure, and Jeff, you both read. All, Could you describe that a little bit? What is what is that mutual fund share class disclosure initiative by the SEC? Well, that initiative essentially, and it was started, uh, I think, three or four years ago. And the SEC gave uh, 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 firms time to come into compliance before they started uh, their enforcement actions to basically say that if you are selling the uh, uh, an identical uh, uh, uh uh, share um, at, a mutual the higher, fund. at the higher price that includes a 12b1 fee then and you and you don't sell it at the lower price that doesn't include the 12b1 fee that is a fiduciary breach and they got it I think exactly right uh, because it's it's as close to you know yellow green black white blue red whatever colors you want to use difference as you can get because mm -hmm. it's the identical product at a higher price versus a lower price and, and firms have been penalized and yes, paying back thousands exactly. of dollars of restitution to exactly. clients and all that kind of stuff so yeah. so in that in that context guess what the a, a the fiduciary standard was actually enforced so it can be done i think that's that's a good point. Hear that, Jeff? It can be done. It can be done, yeah. Jeff. <laughs> There's always hope when you're a positive person, Canute. There's always hope. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So, you're uh, a Detroit Lions fan, Jeff. So I got to give it to you. You have some kind of There's, outlook. Oh on gosh. Uh, There's nothing more positive than being in 
Detroit Lions fan. Um, well, is, is this where I'm not supposed to mention that I'm a lifelong Green Bay Packer fan? Uh, yeah, you should be better friends with Mark Sheff then. <laughs> yeah, Sheffy loves the Packers. Oh my gosh, well, he had a he had a Packers shirt on just the other day. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Okay, I I didn't I didn't know that. I just thought he was an Indianapolis guy, but uh, no, he he got married to somebody who was a Packer fan, and I ah think okay, well you know allegiances. So however you get to Green Bay, that's the it doesn't matter as long as you get to Green Bay. There, there you, go. you go. Could you tell us about your organization and what it does? And are you consultants? Are you lawyers? Do you sue people? Like, do you consult with people? What do you do exactly? We are uh, a nonprofit that uh, formed and exists for the purpose of educating and advocating for the fiduciary standard period end of sentence. Uh, and so we, that means that we, that, we, that we focus on policy. So you're a lobbyist, in other words. Uh, 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 no, we're advocates, Bruce. We're, we would never think of lobbying. Uh, we are advocates. We are educators. Um, and so we spend time focusing on, in Washington, we focus on the SEC, we focus on the DOL regarding fiduciary, and then we have tried to contribute to, uh, to the industry by saying this is what we think the best fiduciary advisors do, and that's reflected in our, in our real fiduciary practices. So those are the two places that we, that we, uh, that we focus our attention and our time, and um, that's what we do. And how did you personally become so focused on this? Many years ago, about 20 years ago, when I started in this industry, I, I was a mid-career switchover. I worked for an um, uh, independent RIA in Northern Virginia. What were you doing before this? Before then, I was actually I was working in advocacy in Washington. I, um, uh, earlier, I, I, worked for, I worked in political campaigns, and I worked downtown for a couple of... Uh, uh, PR advocacy firms before I did this. Okay. So uh, that's my background. So I don't come at it uh, from the insurance side or the security side. I come at it from the outside in a sense. And I think that is uh, that can be an advantage, frankly. Hey, Canute, let's, uh, let's go back to the kind of the original conversation you and I yep. had a week or so ago about fees. Um, yep. I wrote a story about flat fees uh, gaining some momentum in certain pockets of the wealth management space where an advisor will, uh, usually they work for some kind of a retainer or flat fee and, and that is, that rankles some people that like the asset, which most of the industry likes asset-based pricing. They charge. Right. Usually, oh, they love it. Usually a little less than 1% of your they asset. They love that asset-based pricing, Jeff. <laughs> and, and some of the challenges <laughs> with that, as you know, Knute, is uh, they, a lot of these advisors, they don't do a lot of the asset management. In some cases, they don't do any asset management. Right. They, they charge based on a client's Investnet does. Which is, which is sort right. of strange. Um, right. So where where are you? I and mean, what, what's the, what's the well, your organization's position on fees? Where okay. should they be? Um, a, the, the Institute for the Fiduciary Standard does not have a position per se on the, uh, uh, on whether the uh, the the client fee is asset based whether it's hourly or whether it's a flat fee what uh, what our position what our position is is that it is that for our practices you can uh, our advisors can only be compensated by clients so mm -hmm. our advisors uh, uh, use uh, all of the three um, uh, uh, models but 
I have been trying to uh, watch the conversation as it has heated up over time. And I think one of the things that strikes me, and this is why I, I reached out to you, Jeff, is that mm-hmm. um, when I drill down with somebody who is carrying the, the AUM flag or carrying the flat fee fa- flag, and when I drill down, I think they agree about it on 85%, frankly, of the assumptions and the premises involved in their position. They disagree on the 15%. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, I, I was on the phone call this morning, in, 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 in fact, with a longtime friend who is an adamant AUM advocate. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, uh, tell me again what's the most important two points. And, and he spent a long time doing that. And, um, and, I, and then I asked, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? And what I got was that there is large agreement. Now, I say that because the larger picture to me, uh, Jeff and Bruce, is that um, in terms of a fiduciary, as a starting point, the advantage to the client of having a fee uh, having an advisor who's only paid by the client, and that is transparent. And this is a piece mm-hmm. of it that somehow I think gets lost, frankly, uh, is such a huge advantage over the other side where uh, the conflicts are rampant. And guess what? They're not transparent. And I'm just going to say two more things. The, the, uh, the poster child that I like to use is if you want to have a fun time, go to Ameriprise's ADV and look at their section on how we get paid. <laughs> and they use... They oh, it's use, like 15 pages long or something. Bingo! Exactly. You get, Bruce, you get the gold star because you... Yeah. Exa- that's my point. That's exactly my point. What What the hell... How simple is that? <laughs> what the hell is a, a is an investor supposed to take away from that? When right. they, a typical fee-only advisor can, can express it in a paragraph or half a page and it can and it's transparent and the issue of transparency gets lost so i stand back well let's say, just not pick on ameriprise though because well okay no, i that's, speak to broker a lot of different brokers a lot of yep. different you know big firms there's this real and jeff i'm sure you, you've run into this too i don't think anyone knows how the big firms price municipal bond trades and you know i got an old auntie down in Baltimore in the retirement home and her old income is off of tax-free municipal bonds right you know? so mm-hmm. it's like it's it still boggles the mind the lack of transparency around trading of certain trading and pricing of certain products well I think and I think the big firms are hanging on to that uh for dear life I I think you're ab- absolutely right and yes we shouldn't just pick on Ameriprise, although they're so easy to pick on, it's hard to resist. But just by chance, <laughs> just by chance, I happened to come across Merrill Lynch's Advisory Services Program, ADV, March 21, last month. If you look at their 34 pages, uh, pages 11 to 15, 19, 21, and 24 to 23 uh, discuss fees. So they just don't limit it to 15 pages. Right. They, they include even more pages in this discussion. So, you know, I don't think it's just a Well, they have twice as many brokers. <laughs> okay. So, so they got to have twice as uh, uh, an ADV that's twice as well, long, well, Right. But, you know, but so the point to me is I wish that just a part of the energy among uh, the, the fee-only folks that I know and I admire because, you know, I, I'm one of those guys that, you know, when, you know, when I read about um, 
you know, financial planning and I read about uh, Dick Wagner, I think Dick Wagner got it right in terms of what the, what the potential of this profession is. And so that's what I look at and say, why the hell can't we spend more time on differentiating what we do, all fee-only advisors, from what the other guys do because we are so far ahead as a group that that's much more relevant, especially in the context, to bring this back to what we started our conversation with, when we've got the SEC trying to erase the difference in the public mind. Well, you have Fisher Investments as commercials during, you know, baseball games, right? And news and sporting events about their fiduciary, right? Well, yes, yes. Um, I mean, that's how far it's gone uh, in in the 22 years that, Jeff and I have both been at Investment News in the, in the two decades or so that you've been yeah. doing advocacy around this. Jeff, don't you think so, or, or what? Well, yeah, but uh, to me, this is part of the, the muddled confusion that I'm always banging the drum on. It's one yes. thing to say, yeah, Fisher Investments is talking about calling themselves a fiduciary because they realize it's a hot-button topic and it's a, it's a buzzword that people feel is a positive thing. But we're talking about fees right here. Um, it, can you be a fiduciary and not be fee only? And can you be fee only and not be a fiduciary? Now I, you're blowing my mind, dude. Well, <laughs> I, I think Canute knows where I'm going. With you're this, like, right? you know, no, no, now no, no, you're no, going no, out no, there. And listen, Jeff, and Jeff, and you know what my answer is going to be. And yes, you raise a really good point mm-hmm. that you know that that yes, uh, uh, you you can be fee only and not. And not act as a fiduciary, right? And vice versa, as you say. Uh, but when you start, and this is the part that is always forgotten, I think, even in our conversations among fee-only fiduciaries, when you start with the premise that my only conflict, essentially, is to negotiate a fee, be it hourly, flat fee, or AUM, mm-hmm. that's my only main conflict then you're starting from a very different position than if you start from the position that my I exist to to distribute product and to execute trades and that to me is what we need to focus more on and I'm you know but but you know but Jeff I think your point is well taken because it's there are lots of ways to work the system and of course right. we know we have a very ingenious industry uh, that that works the system and any ways yeah. they can but if you start from that position it is different and it is different uh, notwithstanding uh, how people have tried to change the definitions such right. as well to me the 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 thing is that you can be uh, if the distinction is on fee only uh, only making money only getting paid by the clients that would be easier to understand and in so much more concrete than this yeah. idea of being a fiduciary but yeah. the reason the industry won't do it is because it draws attention to fees and fees is where all hell breaks loose because oh, yes. that's that's when you're getting into you know AUM fees are good for clients in a certain range the, it's advantageous for them but when you get up to hundreds of millions of dollars in your account like Bruce Kelly has if you're paying 1%, that's that's no fun for you anymore. You want to be fee only. So, it's a it's a real moving target when you get to the fee debate in financial advisors. That's why I like writing about it and talking about it cuz you get so many different perspectives. 
you know, you do. And, you know, let, let me just add one thing to what you said, you know, because, I mean, I, I think we need, we should not conflate the amount of the fee with the, uh, with the, the model of the fee. And what I mean by that is, you know, uh, the, you know, there is no, uh, you know, there is no Ten Commandments that says that an AUM has to be 100 basis points. Mm -hmm. And we are discovering, we're discovering that. But, but here, the, you know, here the difference to me is if the other side was as transparent as fee-only advisors, we would have a, it, it would be a game changer. It's mm -hmm. the transparency that keeps it, I think, largely the way it is and that investors are understandably confused because they're, because they're played like pawns frankly, as a, you know, uh, and so it's the, it's the opaqueness. That yeah, it's the fun. brokers that have the 30-page, 15 and 30-page form ADVs, Jeff. Well, you know? I'm not saying, I'm not saying that And I think, Jeff, are, I think you're under the impression that better. all people who live in New York have lots of money for some reason, because <laughs> you keep mentioning all this money that I have, and yeah. um, I'm, I got no, a kid Bruce, with braces not... and a, you know. No, Bruce, they're, I'm not, they're not saying, even through college not, yet, you know, so I don't even know what you're talking about. Now. Yeah, I'm not saying that brokers don't have confusing uh, ADVs and explanations for the ways they make money. I'm saying you get a, any decent sized group of advisors and you start talking to them about how they're charging the fees. It might be easy to understand. That doesn't mean everybody's going to agree on it. And it's certainly going to expose some wide disparities in there. Right. Yes. I would take that all day long over somebody from one of the big firms trying to just tell me how they price municipal bond trades. Well, you know, and, and, and how it shows up on your client account statement. You know, and, and actually, as I was thinking about this discussion today, I wonder if either of you two remember about five years ago, there was a great piece, and this is not a competitor, so I'll mention it, in the Wall Street Journal by one of the reporters just asking the broker what did, what did, he, what did she pay last year. And she spent the whole article uh, describing what the firm that she worked with did to try to answer her question. And, you know, anyway, I, I think that was a, that was a perfect Canute, sort of I hate to tell you the Wall Street Journal is a competitor. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh gosh, I insulted you guys. I'm they sorry. They steal our stuff all the time, man. So I'm sorry. Anyway, um, I I thought I'm that very was, wounded. That was that was a good example <laughs> of this whole thing about fees and has to do with uh, transparency and uh, uh, you know if if things if they if they were all really transparent. Uh, it would. I think it would be a game changer, but that's not going to happen. You should be able to know what you're paying, and yes, and if you go to that's what, another reason that uh, advisors like asset-based fees because they don't have to talk to their clients about it; they just deduct it. But if you're going to charge somebody, you know, five thousand dollars a year to on a flat fee basis or ten thousand, whatever, yep. you got to go to them every quarter and say, "Hey, I need that check." Um, yep. And that's the. I mean. What, what do oh, you the asset based fees are ticked off at the start of every quarter? Right. You know? Yeah. Right. That's yeah. what I'm saying. But if you go flat fee, you got to actually knock on their door or write them a letter, make, send yeah. them an email or phone call and say, hey, and, you know, and, and Jeff, me. you know, when you say that, this is where I, I think of the generational difference, and that is the millennials are not going to tolerate the level of, of uh, lack of clarity and even opaqueness that the baby boomers' parents tolerated. Mm -hmm. And I think we're already seeing that, that uh, in terms of what's happening in the marketplace. But yes, you're right, you're right, uh, that uh, there's a greater level of transparency and clarity. Uh, 
typically when you're dealing with a flat fee. And, and, and you know, let me just get this in because, you know, I, I've never been a particular f uh, sort of a, um, a focused on hourly. But, you know, over the, over the, t the, the turn of last year, I, I got uh, uh, Mark Berg's new book, A Matter of Time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I sort of delved into that. And, you know, he makes a good case for hourly. But the part of it that, that really struck me as, as a fiduciary advocate is that the, the degree to which a firm that does hourly is focused on the advice. It's all about the advice. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that, does, that is different. And I think in terms of going forward, the, you know, the difference between fo distinguishing between advice and all that other stuff out there, uh, you know, and without using the F word is going to be, you know, is going to be more important than ever. So, well, we'll, we'll stay without tuned. using the F word, I like that as a title. Yeah. <laughs> well, stay tuned, Canute, because I'm, uh, I'm working on something right now, uh, building Great. a little string on a story about advice only, it, you know, advisors that are advice only they don't even mess with your portfolio right they let you do that yourself and they charge a fee for that and let's face it building a portfolio and trading and moving money around is not that complicated knowing what to do is complicated but the actual process is um you know you can do that on your vanguard account well so, that, i think that's i mean that that's the underlying that's the 800 pound gorilla in the room to the extent that there is greater acceptance of this notion of whether it's Vanguard or wherever it is, index funds, ETFs, and that is basically all you need, mm -hmm. then it, it, it changes the focus to where it belongs, which is the financial planning side, frankly. And so, yeah, yeah there you go. Anyway, hey, Bruce, we got anything else for, uh, for Canute before we No, I just love, I think that's a title of something without using the F word, you know? <laughs> I say that to my kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And yeah. I don't mean fiduciary. <laughs> well, you know, now, now you, can, you can elaborate on that. And I don't mean fiduciary. And they'll look at you even more strangely than they already look at you, Bruce. So there you go. Well, Canute, that was great, man. Thank you so much for coming by the podcast. Well, listen, thank you guys for inviting me. I'm, I, I really appreciate it. And obviously, I enjoy this conversation. And uh, again, you know, uh, I, I love the work that you guys do. The... Uh, uh, day in and day out to uh, to help make uh, help make America just a little bit better. So there you go. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. All right, thank you. Hey Jeff, that was another great episode of the Investment News Podcast. If it's Monday, it's time for another podcast. We want to thank our special guest, Knute Rosted, the head of the Institute for the Fiduciary standard. We also want to thank Angelica Hester, our producer. You can find the podcast, of course, at investmentnews.com and all over the places where you get your podcasts. That's Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Follow us, please, on Spotify. Uh, to reach out to Jeff, try Twitter. Uh, and his handle is at Benji Ryder. My Twitter handle is at BD News Guy. Stay tuned, and we'll be talking to you next week. Music